right? And you can relive the scene in your mind. You can smell what was going on. You can hear the, the conversation. You can see the whole thing, bigger and wider, full life than the photograph shows, but it's that little snapshot of that moment in time captured that is so so powerful. And so, I don't know, man. Today with modern technology and digital cameras, it's pretty cool because you can take the picture and before you can even stop your cheese smile, you're like, can I see that? You want to make sure? So y'all want to see the pictures Randy took this morning? You want to see any of those pictures? Do we, do we have pictures, Jared? Let's check it out. There's some of the snapshots that Randy took this morning as you guys came into the church. Oh, look, we got some recognition for the guys back in the, in the booth there. I don't know what I was doing. I'm obviously not Italian, but I talk with my hands. Oh, our kids, that's great. Up in our elementary school room, right up there, that's super. Oh, man, some hardworking servers right there. Those men are some servants out there working in our parking lot, doing setup team. Hey, wait, 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 hold on. Somebody snuck these pictures in. I don't know who did this. I'm a really humble guy. I don't really like to advertise, you know, I mean... Y'all may have seen this movie that um, I was in it before Harrison Ford. But, uh, uh, dude, how did y'all get the Hamilton family photo album? Look, I'm really, I don't normally advertise these things, but I don't know. There I am with some presidents. I mean, it was just one of those things. They called me up, wanted some advice about some stuff. And so I rolled in and, you know, just a few sitting presidents and, and past presidents and all that. It, just, it was a low-key deal. I don't know how that picture got in here. But uh, anyway, that's just some of the snapshots uh, that we have of some moments in time this morning, you guys being the church and, and me just obviously not being me. I mean, that was Photoshop, right? What I was saying a minute ago about a snapshot being an accurate representation of a moment in time is true unless that photo's been messed around with and altered, right? You have an accurate photo, you have an accurate view of that moment. If you have a jacked up photo, something that's been photoshopped, and look, man, I don't know about y'all, but anytime I see a really cool photograph now, I have to wonder, has that been, has that been photoshopped? Like, I'm a fisherman and an outdoorsman, a hunter and all that stuff, and I go to Bass Pro, and they have little bragging walls, and I see a dude with a fish like this, and, and one of the things a fisherman has learned to do is that you always hold your catch way out here because it's closer to the camera and it looks really, really big. And then you, now you can Photoshop that and like extend it even more. So you're like, you know, you're holding a one pound bass, but it's like double arm like this, you know. I got to wonder if those pictures, those really cool double rainbow pictures, things like that, have been Photoshopped, messed around with. Because then they're no longer an accurate representation. And I think a lot of us have a skewed view, an inaccurate photo, snapshot of our Savior, Jesus. We have an inaccurate image of who He is, what He's about. Our, our minds have maybe been, have been messed with by some photoshopped images of Christ. Today, what I want to do is help give you all a clearer, more accurate better picture of Jesus, of who he is and what he's about. And I want to do that by doing something I've never tried before. Y'all are like guinea pigs. This is a big experiment today. Shh, don't tell anybody, okay? I want to preach through an entire book of the Bible in seven snapshots. 
This is not going to be like an in-depth, chapter-by-chapter, verse-by-verse, let's get in there and tear the Scripture apart, really dig in deep. It's not that kind of a, of a journey through the book of Revelation today. Today I want to take seven snapshots, seven little moments from Scripture and see if we can get a clearer picture of, of Jesus and a better picture of the end the book, what Revelation is oftentimes associated with, the end of times, and see if we can, through those things, find some truth, find some things that are relevant and real and important to our lives today. I want to learn from tomorrow, in other words, what Revelation reveals, truths for today. The first snapshot, if you want to follow along on your little handout, and I hate doing those things for one thing. It makes me stay on track, which I don't like because I like to like wander and stuff, but it helps me because I stay on track, and you can follow what I'm talking about. So if you'll use those and follow along, if I miss a, a blank, you can find me later and beat me up about it, and I'll help you fill it in. But I know some of you are really like type A's, and you want every blank filled in accurately, and if I skip one, you're angry. And so for the last three weeks, some of you have been really upset with me. Chill out. Come see me. We'll fill them in, all right? But here we go. The very first snapshot for today is an accurate view of Jesus. If you will, turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. We're going to start at the start, begin with the beginning. Revelation 1, 1. If you don't have your Bible, check out the screen above and you can follow along with us. Revelation 1, 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John. John is the author of this book, Revelation who testifies to everything that he saw, that is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Check out the first five words of this book, of this verse. The first five words, the revelation of Jesus Christ. When we think of the book of Revelation, Jim said it earlier as he was doing our introduction today, he said, hey, Revelation... It's the book that describes what's going to happen in the end. We tend to think about end times and destruction and turmoil. We think about dragons and beasts and battles. But the book of Revelation, like the other 65 books of the Bible, is a book about Jesus. It's a book about Jesus. The entire Bible is about Jesus. See, because it's always been about Jesus. It's about Jesus today, and it's always going to be about Jesus. Everything in our lives, everything that God does, it's really about Jesus. It always has been, it always will be, and it is right now, today. This is important. It's important for us to start off with that understanding because one of the most common questions I get as a pastor, and frankly, I think it is the big question of all mankind, is this. What am I here for? I mean, what's the purpose of me? How do I fit into this big thing, this world, and all the stuff that's going on? And when you ask that question, I think a lot of times what we're really asking is, what does God want from me? And what does God want for me? What does God want from me? What does he want for me? And I'll tell you this, you will never know what God wants until you know who 
God is. You'll never know what God wants until you understand who he is. I think many, like I said a moment ago, have this photoshopped image of God. We see Jesus either as somebody that he isn't or in only one aspect of his character. Some people think of Jesus as their buddy, their pal, like they got the t-shirt, Jesus is my homeboy, right? I mean, Jesus is my homeboy, JC and me, you know? Me and Jesus, he's my boy, we hang. I talk to him, we chill. That's cool, that's one aspect of Jesus. But Jesus can't just be your buddy. Jesus is our holy God. There's more to him than just being your buddy or your pal. Some people see Jesus, they had this image of Jesus like Santa Claus bringing presents to put under the Christmas tree. Like, I want something, I make my list, I pray, I ask for it, and he's supposed to deliver. Just like my kids, man, I got two-year-old, a nine-year-old, and a ten-year-old. They're busy making out a Christmas list right now. If you got kids, they've been making, my kids had a Christmas list made like in September. And it's just been editing ever since then, right? As the new commercials come out for the new toys or the new clothes, they just, they're editing those lists. Some of us treat God. We treat Jesus like he's Santa Claus. I want this, I want that, and I expect you to deliver it to me. Like he's some kind of vending machine or something, I don't know. Some people have an image of God as a superhero, the superhero people are the ones that only seek God when the stuff is hitting the fan. Your life is chaos. It's crazy. It's a mess. Disaster is, is coming. There's a tornado in your, in your town. There's uh, uh, no money in your bank account. You just screwed up on the job big time and you're pretty sure you're going to get fired. Man, you will hit your knees in those moments and you will pray like there's no tomorrow. And you expect God to swoop in. Got a big JC patch across, you know, super Jesus on his chest and, and to bail you out of your trouble. You see, Jesus is a superhero. For some, <laughs> some think of Jesus like he's the Terminator out to get you. You see, God is the cosmic killjoy he's just there to mess your life up and to keep you from doing fun things and when you do those fun things then you must be punished like god's just all about rules and regulations and good and bad there's some accuracy in all of those views and a lot of inaccuracy in those views and if you have any one of those views is your image of jesus you have a skewed view your image is is messed up it's incomplete or blurry it's a mess I'm going to run through some scripture really quick and describe who Jesus really is. His life is well documented. His ministry was three years long. Twelve men followed him intensely, closely. Thousands followed him at arm's length or more. These twelve, several of them, took those three years of their life and wrote them down. It's called the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Out of the Gospel of Mark, I've pulled several verses that describe who Jesus is. Now, this was written by a man who walked with him, talked with him, ate with him, slept next to him, was with him like 24-7, 365 for three years. 
Here's what is recorded in John's Gospel. John chapter 6. Jesus is called the bread of life. The bread of life. He fulfills your hunger. There are a lot of people today who are spiritually hungry. They're starving for what God offers. Jesus is here to fulfill that hunger, to fill them up. And when you get filled by that, by Jesus, you will never be hungry again. John chapter 8, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. I'm the light of the world. And many today are walking in darkness. They are dark on the inside. They see darkness on the outside. Jesus penetrates that darkness. He is the bright spot. And when he penetrates the darkness of your heart, he eradicates that darkness and fills you with light. He fills this world with light. I am the light of the world, Jesus says. John chapter 10, I'm the good shepherd. I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd, a good shepherd, tends his sheep. He takes care of the sheep. He puts his life on the line for the sheep. He leads them to, to food. He leads them to water. He shelters them. He takes on lions and tigers and bears, oh my. He does whatever it takes to care for the sheep. Also, in John chapter 10, Jesus says, I am the gate by which the sheep enter the sheep pen. In other words, Jesus is the way into heaven. The sheep pen is something the shepherd would have built oftentimes out of stone, and they would leave these things for, for years. Generations and generations would use the same sheep pens. When they were out in the fields and had their flocks with them, they would move at night to a sheep pen. They would either build a pen or go to an established pen, and they would put their sheep inside the pen, and, and then they would stand at the opening as the gate. And so no wolf or bear or lion or whatever could come in and take the sheep. <coughs> the pen was a place of safety. Jesus says, I'm the gate by which you enter the safety, the security of a relationship with God, of eternity in heaven. John chapter 11 says that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Think about that, the resurrection and the life. He brings back to life what is dead. You and I both know people who are walking dead. Walking dead. You may be feeling that way yourself this morning. Empty and dead. Just alive but, but not dead. Any who don't know Jesus, who walk without Christ, a relationship with him, you're spiritually dead. Jesus came that you might have life and have it to the full. He resurrects what was once dead. He breathes life into the lifeless. John 14, 6. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the way. He is the truth. He's the only life that we have. Finally, John 15, he says, I'm the vine and you are the branches. Remain in me and you will bear much fruit, but apart from me you can do nothing. 
Apart from me, you can do nothing. Too many of us believe that our success in this world, our significance in this life, is measured by what we accomplish, by what we do. Your significance is not found in the clothes that you wear, the house that you live in, the car that you drive, the job that you have, or even whether or not your children are well-behaved or not, well-groomed or not. That's not what defines you. That is not where your significance is found. The significance of mankind, of every individual, is found in a Savior. His name is Jesus. Do you know Him? Do you know Him? Our second snapshot this morning is the confirmation of His Word. The confirmation of His Word. Can we all agree that everything in the Bible is important? Like, I think everything in the Bible is important. I even give credence to the maps. Like, and that thing in the back that you look up words, the concordance. Like, I think it's all important. If it's in here, the table of contents is, I mean, it's all important. If it's in here, it's important. Some things I believe God gives extra importance to. He gives a little extra significance to some things in here, and he does that by repeating them. See, repetition is a great tool. If you're a parent, you're all about repetition, right? I mean, you can't tell your child one time what they need to do. If you're a teacher, you can't teach something one time and expect the, the kids to get it. If you're a boss, a manager, a leader, you can't just lead one time, say this is what you got to do, and expect that it's all going to be done exactly the way that it needs to be done. You've got to repeat some things. God is the best boss, the best teacher, the best parent that there has ever been or ever will be. He is our heavenly parent, and he repeats things for our benefit, just like we repeat things for our children's benefit seven times in two chapters in the book of Revelation, God repeats the same phrase. Revelation chapter 2, verse 7. Chapter 2, verse 11. Chapter 2, verse 17. Chapter 2, verse 29. Revelation 3, 6, 3, 13, and 3, 22. All have the phrase, Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the church. If you have ears to hear, hear what the Spirit says to the church. Well, gee, Todd, what's the Spirit saying? I mean, you're like the church. You're the pastor. You're the, you're the preacher. Tell us what the Spirit... No, you're the church. You're the church. This building's not the church. This is a community theater. We rent it. Meet here every Sunday. We move in. We move out. You're the church. God is speaking to you. The Lord has something to say specifically, directly, individually to you. Can you hear Him? Are you even listening? Are you listening? I think a lot of people today don't listen to what God has to say because their minds are already made up. Okay, I won't even say a lot of people. I'll just go ahead and tell you, that's a confession. Sometimes I'm not listening to what God has to say because I've already made up my mind. 
And if I listen to what God has to say, I might find that he disagrees with me. Oh, no. What if he disagrees with me? Then I can't go do what I want to go do. I can't make this decision or that decision, do this thing or that thing. Or maybe I can, I'll just be in disobedience. But if I don't ask, if I don't listen, then I don't know, and I can always claim ignorance, right? How many of us have found ourselves in terrible places in life, made horrible decisions, lived through ridiculous consequences, kicking ourselves in the backsides because we didn't listen to what God had to say because we had already made up our minds. Remember the superhero people? Talked about a little while ago, got the superhero image of God in their minds, that incomplete snapshot, that skewed view. Superhero people are famous for this one. That's how they get themselves in a superhero situation. They don't listen to God. They make a decision, and then they want him to swoop in and save them when it all hits the fan. God is speaking. Are you listening? He's speaking directly to you, and he has something very important to say. What is it? What is God saying to you? This morning, I'm being quiet so you can hear, so you can listen for the still small voice. Are you tuned in? Listen to what the Lord says. Do what Ephesians 6.1 teaches children to do when their parents speak. Listen and obey. My kids hate that phrase. They hear it a lot. Listen and obey. Have you listened for the Lord? Are you listening for the Lord? What is he saying to you? Listen and obey. Because one day, you're going to stand before him And everything that he's ever said, everything that is in the Bible, everything that he has spoken to your spirit, to your heart, it will all be validated and confirmed. Don't doubt God. Don't ignore God. Don't tune him out so you can go your own way. Our third snapshot this morning is stewardship. Stewardship. We talked some about stewardship last week. Some of you are afraid I'm about to go on a rant about money. Get over it. The Bible talks about money. i got to talk about money. I don't talk about money. The Bible says I'm going to be held accountable for that, so I'm going to talk about money. But I'm talking about a lot more than money when I talk about stewardship. See, every single thing that you have, whether it is a material possession, the air that you breathe, the beats in your heart, the talents, the skills, the abilities that reside within you, they're all given to you by God. And they're all given to you with a purpose. He has a plan for all of it. How we steward the things that we have been given is really, really important. 
check out Revelation chapters 4 and 5. In this, in this block of, of Scripture, these, two, these passages, these two chapters, there's, there's a story, or not a story really, but just a description of 24 elders. Now this is in John's vision of the future, of the end times, of what's happening at the very end of the world. And he sees this image and this vision of, of these 24 elders. And these elders have crowns on their heads. And these crowns, most scholars believe, are our rewards in heaven. I talked about that last week, how everybody's not going to have the same experience in heaven. There are rewards, and you can miss some of your rewards. You can't miss heaven if you know Jesus. You can definitely, you will miss it if you don't. But if you know Jesus, you, can, you can't lose your salvation, but you can lose your rewards, these crowns. A lot of people believe that everybody in heaven will have a crown. And, and, and your crown is representative of your life and how you lived and how you stewarded everything that God gave you. Verse 4, or chapter 4, verse 10. Let's see what these, what these elders do with their crowns. The 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and they worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne. They lay their crowns before the throne. Now, a lot of these biblical scholars and guys that are wiser and smarter and more learned and have studied this longer than me and they believe these crowns will be the only thing we have in heaven that has any kind of what we would on earth call material value or, or wealth or whatever. These crowns of precious metals and precious stones that represent our lives and everything that we've done, how we've stewarded what God has given us. These crowns are all we have of value and these, these elders fall down before the throne of Jesus. They lay them at the feet of Jesus and they worship him. Verse 11, they cry out, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created, and they have their being. They're worshiping God with their material wealth. They're worshiping God with their entire life, this thing that represents all that they have ever been given. They are stewarding in the end. They are stewarding in heaven everything God gave them and their life on earth. They're worshiping God because God is the only one who is worthy of our worship. If they worship God in heaven with all that they have, with everything that their life represents, if that's a snapshot of that distant future, maybe not too distant for some of us, Shouldn't we worship God in, on, in our life on earth with the things that he has given? Shouldn't we steward our time, our very lives? Shouldn't we steward our money and material wealth? Shouldn't we steward the talents that God has given us as an act of worship to him? I say we should. We should worship him with our time, with our talents, and our gifts. The fourth snapshot this morning is a packed house. A packed house. Look around this room. Literally. Look around. Look behind you. Look to your right, to your left. There's empty chairs. There's full chairs. There's space down the middles and the sides and space in the back. And There's a lot of space in this room. There's empty chairs stacked along the back wall, the side wall. 
There's a lot of room in this room. This is not a snapshot of what heaven will look like. Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count. From every tribe, every nation, every people, every language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes, were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. They're worshiping God, and there's a great multitude that no one can count. Now, I'm an Aggie, and, and I was a really bad, I was nothing, I am really bad in math. And so I got those two strikes against me, right? I mean, education was at Texas A&M. Some of you just, you know, I mean, Aggies, whoop, gig them, right, we're good. But the rest of the world isn't so sure that we're that bright. But you know what? I wasn't that bright on the front end. I wasn't that bright on the back end of my education. But here's the deal. Some people there are. Some people in this world are. Some people in heaven are going to be really mathematically brilliant. And the Bible didn't say that Todd couldn't count. The Bible doesn't say that, that Aggies couldn't count. The Bible doesn't say what Longhorns couldn't count. The Bible says no one, no one could count the great multitude. Now, I don't know about you, but what I envision when I hear about things like this is like a lot of people. I mean, just a lot. I don't know how else to describe it. I can put a number on it, but the number is insufficient. It's a lot. Heaven's going to be full. It's going to be like packed. It's going to be a packed house. And we're going to worship God in this packed house, a great multitude that no one can count. And you know what? If you know Jesus, you're in the great multitude. Like when John saw the great multitude that nobody could count, he saw you in there. He might not be able to pick out your face in the crowd, but you were there in the future. Isn't that cool? If you know Christ, you're already counted in the great multitude. If you don't, you can be. But you know who else is in that multitude besides you, Christian? Lots of people are represented in that. Husbands and wives, sons and daughters, fathers and mothers, neighbors, bosses, co-workers, teammates, coaches, strangers are in that great multitude. But if Jesus came back today for his church, they wouldn't be included because they don't yet know him. And that's why there's room in this room. Because we have work to do. There is a community outside of these doors that is dying and going to hell. A 2010 survey showed it. Two out of three in Louisville, Flower Mound, Highland Village. The numbers are about the same in all of these communities have no religious affiliation whatsoever, no church attendance, no relationship with God. They're not Buddhist. They're not, they're not Seventh-day Adventists. They're not, they're not Baptists. They're, not, they're nothing. They're nothing. And on that day when the multitude that no one can count is assembled and worships the Lord and God, They'll be absent. If not for an invitation, if not for you and I doing what God has called us to do, which is to go and share the gospel, to love them as ourselves, to, to be there with them, 
to lead them as somebody led you to a relationship with Him. Got a lot of work to do. This church should not be small. No church. Well, that's not necessarily true. This church shouldn't be small. The church should be representative of the community that's in. You have a small community, you should have a small church. Makes sense, right? We live in a big community. Within about a 15 or 20 minute drive of here, there's a couple hundred thousand people. There's mega churches on every corner. Two out of three still don't know Christ. Couple hundred thousand people. Right here in our community, right here in our neighborhood. We got a lot of work to do. This should be a big honking church. This should be ginormous. And it will be. If you, if you come here because you like a small church, let me break your heart now. It's not going to be a small church for long. This church is not going to stay a small church because this church is doing the work of God. We are busy about his business. We are reaching out to other people. We are sharing the gospel. We lead people to know Jesus personally, to grow in their faith through relationships, and to go share the love of God with others. That's our mission statement. It's why we're here. And we're doing it, and we're growing. A little over a year ago, we were 12 people in my living room. Are you kidding me? This church isn't going to stay small. If you're here for a small church, bless you. We will help you find another small church. Don't stay here. We're only going to frustrate you. Okay? If you're here to worship God and to build the church he's called you to build, get off your hands. And that's a nice way of saying get off your butt. But get off your hands. You're sitting on them and not doing the work that God's called you to do unless you're out there sharing the gospel, sharing God's love, inviting people into a relationship with him. Heaven is going to be a packed house. Elevation Church is going to be a packed house. This room will not contain this church for long. It just won't. Amen. That's right. So let it be. So let it be. We're going to blow the doors off of this place, baby. And it's not because of me and you. And it's not big for big's sake. I want Elevation Church to be a big church because I want Louisville and Flower Mound and Highland Village and this community to be the hardest place in the world to get to hell from. It should be hard for somebody in this community to go to hell. It should be hard. And that's our job, is to make it hard on the devil to mess stuff up, to lead people astray. To get out there and share what God has done for you and what he's doing for them, to bring them into his house. So this is a big church, but more importantly, so that heaven is a big church that nobody can count. You've got to pack the house. Our next snapshot might be the scariest passage in all of Scripture. It's the final proclamation of the gospel. Revelation chapter 14, verses 6 and 7. You may not think this is too scary when we read it. Hold on. Then I saw another angel flying in midair, and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, every tribe, every language, and every people. He said in a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. 
You're right, Todd. I didn't think that was very scary. That's the last time in the pages of Scripture that the gospel is proclaimed. The gospel is being proclaimed every day all over the world right now, in every nook, cranny, and corner. All seven continents, assuming there's somebody on Antarctica right now. But the gospel is being proclaimed. But that day is going to come to an end. The day is going to come when the gospel is proclaimed for the last time. And after that day, there will be nothing left but reward or wrath. Reward and wrath. It's a scary snapshot. It's real. That day is coming. Our sixth snapshot is the wrath of God. Oh, Oh, Todd, I don't want to hear about the wrath of God. That is not comfortable. It's not fun. I don't leave church feeling happy when the pastor preaches on the wrath of God. Are you a hellfire and brimstone pastor? Well, sometimes, because it's here. You can deny the wrath of God. You can not like the wrath of God. The wrath of God can make you uncomfortable. Frankly, I'm not really all that comfortable with the wrath of God either. I, you know, it's just not a really exciting thought. Some of you are like, I don't, but, but I want my God to be a happy God. I want my God to be a loving God that just hugs and kisses and welcomes everybody in. It's just a, gee, I love my God. He's that too. But the God of the Bible is also a God of wrath. And like I said, you can deny it. You can pretend it doesn't exist. You can bury your head in the sand. You can pray that it won't affect you or somebody that you know. But check out Revelation 16.1. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out the seven bowls of God's wrath on the earth. The first thing that catches my attention in that is this. God's wrath is so great that it cannot be contained by one vessel, nor poured out at one time. It's in seven bowls to be poured out over a period of time. Because I think if God's wrath fell all at once, well, I shudder to think what might happen. But get this straight. God's wrath is coming. His wrath is coming. It's coming in the end days. And God's wrath will either fall on you or it will fall on Jesus. God's wrath will either fall on you or it will fall on Jesus. If you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus as your Savior and your Lord, it will fall on you. It's that simple. I'd love to give you a big colorful speech about it. I'd like to kind of, you know, make it flowery and pretty and, 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 and soft and fuzzy and, and maybe you would respond better to that message if I did. But I'm just going to tell you the truth today. 
His wrath will fall on you or it will fall on Jesus. If you don't know Jesus personally, it will fall on you. And after that, there is nothing for you but eternal separation from God. It's called hell. You will sit at a judgment we talked about last week and you will be imprisoned in hell. If you want God's wrath to fall on you, just keep doing what you're doing. If you would like instead to have God's wrath fall on Jesus, because Jesus has already accepted God's wrath, it fell on him when he was suspended between heaven and earth, nailed to a cross by you and me for the sin that we commit in our lives. He took God's wrath, and in that moment that he took it, he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was separated, ripped from the Trinity. He took God's wrath for you. And if you will accept that gift, you won't have to face God's wrath in the end days. But make no mistake, God's wrath is coming and it will fall on either God or on you. And when it does, if you're afraid of God's wrath, if you don't like God's wrath, if it kind of gives you that feeling, know this, there's some good in God's wrath. Here's what's good about God's wrath. When it falls, it will destroy every injustice, every evil practice. It it, it will be wiped out forever. And so if you are upset by those things, by injustices, by by children being traded in a sex trade, by by racism and, and by all the kinds of, of human abuses of, of one another and of, of the earth, of all, the, all of it wiped out forever when God's wrath falls. So that's a good thing about God's wrath. Again, you can deny it, you can pretend it isn't going to happen, but His wrath will fall. So make your decision before it's too late. Make your decision about Jesus before it's too late. Do you want to have God's wrath on you or do you want to have Jesus intercede for you? He's already done it. Just receive the gift. Receive that. Make Him your Savior, your Lord, by choosing to follow Him and He'll take the wrath. Final snapshot of the day. Seventh snapshot is the snapshot of peace. Peace. I don't know about you guys, but I find that throughout my life, I run into disappointment. And maybe none of you have ever been disappointed, but I think we live in a disappointing world honestly. It's a fallen world. It would only make sense that we would find disappointment in a sin-stained fallen world. Trina and I, a couple weeks ago, Thanksgiving week, we took a trip to Las Vegas. Hadn't been away together in in like four years, and so we had like a a travel deal that came up. We bought it, and we flew out to Las Vegas. I hadn't been to Vegas since I was in third grade. Like we traveled through there. My parents had a travel trailer in a suburban, and I've seen most of the 50 states that way. Don't do that to your children. Um, Seriously. We stopped through Las Vegas on our way to driving to Disneyland in L.A. If you hadn't ever done that, it's a, it's a long drive, okay? So we j- somehow or another made our way into Las Vegas. We camped out at Circus Circus. We didn't stay in the, in the hotel. We, we stayed in the parking lot in the travel trailer. Oh, boy. It was July. If you've been in a travel trailer, air conditioners, anyway, none of this is relevant. You know what's relevant? We went to Vegas, and we were told all these things to do and places to go, and we went and saw a lot of stuff. But what's funny is a lot of the things that we were told, see, part of what we went for, we went to eat. I won't lie. Y'all can tell. I I don't miss many meals. I like food. I'm a foodie. But we also wanted to see the architecture. There's incredible architecture in Las Vegas. They build these casinos and hotels and all these cool themes and 
there's like a pyramid from Egypt, and there's the, the Sphinx, and, and um, Caesar's Palace has the Roman theme, and there's the Paris Hotel in the New York, New York, and we stayed in the Venetian, which is like themed like Venice and Rome and Italy, and just beautiful. And we were told to go to the New York, New York and check out the Central Park. Inside the hotel, there's like this amazing, beautiful Central Park-themed area, and you really will feel like you're in Central Park. So we walked down the strip, and man, if you ever do that, it's a lot farther in between places than you think it is, so take a taxi. So we walk down the strip, about two miles, we get to the New York, New York, we go inside, and, and we're having a good time walking around, and we're like, where is the Central Park thing? And we can't find it, and you're like, you run out of hotel eventually? So we go and ask somebody, we're like, we were told there is a Central Park area, and, we really, and the lady stopped me, and she goes, we tore that out about three years ago. It's right there where all those slot machines are. Oh, man. That was like one of our top three things we wanted to see in Vegas. It was disappointing. Overall, the trip was fantastic. That was just one disappointment. You and I find disappointment throughout our lives. We live in a disappointing world. But you know what? Heaven won't be like that. There's no disappointment in heaven. There will be no disappointment in heaven. Revelation chapter 21, verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. He will dwell with them. And they will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. In heaven, there will be peace. There will be joy. There will be no disappointment. You will not go seeking satisfaction and come up empty. Heaven will blow your expectations away. In fact, I doubt we will even have expectations when we enter into heaven. If we do, prepare to be amazed. If you have physical ailments, they'll be gone. If you have emotional pain, they'll be gone. If you have tears, They'll be gone. Disappointment? Gone. Hurt? Gone. In heaven, there will be peace. Peace beyond our ability to understand this side of there. Everything will be made right. God's plan comes to fruition. There will be a new heaven and a new earth, the Bible says. And God will dwell with us. Right there. With us. It'll be the third time in history that God literally dwells with His people. In Genesis, before sin, Jesus, when He came wrapped in flesh. And here, in the end, God with us. The question today is will you be there? Will you be there? If today was your last day, and I can't promise that it's not, neither can you. We don't know how many breaths we've got, how many beats in our heart. You're one germ, one drunk driver away. I'm not trying to scare you. I'm just being honest and being real. You might have noticed the death rate, death rate hovers right around 100%. Man, none of us are getting out of this thing alive. 
if today was your last day, will you be there in the great multitude? Will your loved ones 